You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here. And for those who are joining us online, it's good to see you as well. All right. Luke 9, starting at verse 37, we're going to be reading from there. And it should be up on the screen behind me so you can follow along. Uh, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. All right, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm Sure, uh, you all noticed that today's passage is a little lengthy, which is why I had asked Pastor Brad to read it. Uh, (laughs) I also wanted to read it so that I could preach longer. Right? No? Um, Anyways, uh, you also may have noticed that there's a lot going on in this passage. Uh, So I'm I'm really going to focus on the overarching uh, theme or message of this passage, which is, in a nutshell, is about learning to trust and follow Jesus instead of ourselves. It's, it's a hard-hitting lesson here, which, which I feel that we as Christians, as, as proclaimed followers of Jesus Christ, desperately need to, to learn and relearn on, on, a, on a daily basis because 
if we're honest, I think it is one which is repeatedly forgotten, not only throughout our days, but, but throughout history, throughout Christian history, and, and sometimes to, to, to our peril. Um, and it's no wonder that Jesus, after coming down from the mountain where he'd, he'd just been illuminated with God's glory during his transfiguration and then, and then confirmed as God's son in whom the world should listen to, he sees this display of unbelief and doubt before him and then, and in his exasperation quotes the texts of Moses when he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? For Moses, as we know, had also come down from a mountain, his face glowing in God's glory, only to find that the Israelites had so quickly turned from God and, and rejected the commandments choosing instead to venerate their own gods through a golden calf, which they'd constructed with their own hands, following their own way, right? About this, God proclaims, according to Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 20, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. So that's what Jesus is drawing from there when he talks about this generation. And, and on that note, I, I should mention that when the Bible talks about the generation, when they say that word generation, it's, it's usually not in the way that we would define that word today as, as pertaining to you know, a certain age group or, or a timeline like millennials or 80s kids or Gen Xers or whatever. Or rather, in, in the Bible, it, it would often be used to make reference to all those who come from the same origin or heritage, which means when Jesus says this, he's not only speaking to those with him in that moment, but, but he's also drawing back and, and referencing all of God's people throughout history, a people who've made a repetitive habit of turning from God and refusing his instruction because of unbelief and selfish motives, a people that repeatedly trust in their own understanding. And so when Jesus comes down from the mountain only to find his disciples' lack of faith, this is really just history repeating itself. This is history repeating itself. A reminder that we need a better way. A reminder that we need something or someone to break this cycle of mankind's sinful rebellion and continued perversion of God's holiness. And speaking of history repeating itself, it's also easy to see throughout the annals of mankind's time here on earth that one of the biggest perversions of God's name, when we twist God's name and twist the truth, is, is when his name gets used for our own ends, right? Maybe as a, as a weapon to bring others down or conversely as a manipulative tool to further advance one's political agendas or selfish ambitions, it's especially dangerous in that context precisely because those who are using religion or God's name in this way, they often feel like they're doing God's work, like God's on their side, which of course is how they justify their actions as being, as being good and noble and right. Yet all the while they're actually and even unknowingly taking the Lord's name in vain, that is, using God's name to pursue their own ends and desires rather than the other way around. As Robert uh, Deffenbaugh writes, sins often have a pious veneer, a religious sugar coating which makes the sins appear even virtuous. 
There's many examples of this, and I'll, and I'll give you a few. For, uh, for example, I'm sure in the years following the, the Reformation, the Roman papacy felt that burning Protestant heretics at the stake was justified and even a virtuous thing before God. They thought they were doing a godly thing. I'm sure the Pharisees in Jesus' day felt virtuous and righteous in condemning and morally controlling others according to the law of God. I'm sure uh, the Westboro Baptists, we've all heard of them, right? I'm sure they felt that condemning Hollywood actors to hell via picket signs outside of a rewards show was virtuous and that God was impressed with them. I'm sure that Muslim suicide bombers must feel virtuous and even heroic when murdering innocents in the name of Allah. And I'm sure that when the Catholic Church joined forces with the Canadian government in running residential schools with which to colonize, abuse, and assimilate the children of indigenous populations, that they'd convinced themselves that this was somehow a virtuous thing and that they were doing the Lord's work. And the list goes on, right? And in every single one of these cases, we see people doing great evil And yet, they all found a way to justify their actions as right and good simply because they'd convinced themselves that they were doing God's work. As Deffenbaugh again writes, sin is like that. Some may be enticed by sin by knowing it is wrong. Stolen water is sweet from Proverbs 9.17. But sin is especially enticing for the religious by thinking it is virtuous. The prophet Isaiah warns us, about doing this in Isaiah 5, 20, 21, when he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. I think we should do well to, to heed this warning from Isaiah, because let's be honest, whether we like to admit it or not, we're all sometimes pretty chillingly adept at putting a virtuous face on sin, of convincing ourselves, like, like Eve was in the garden, that the evil we want to do is actually good and right. And as we read through the passage this morning, you may have noticed that the disciples do this over and over again. In fact, they make a number of specific blunders and failures, but each time they do, it seems like they actually think they're doing the right thing. They seem to think they're acting in Jesus' best interest and even on his behalf. In fact, none of their sins are actually recognized by them as sins, but as virtuous and right, until, that is, Jesus corrects them each and every time and shows them that they've been leaning on their own understanding of how they think think things should be done, that, that they're only being wise in their own eyes and following their own agendas, all under the guise of following after Jesus. For example, we start out with Jesus discovering that, that, that his disciples were unable to cast a demon out of a man's only son. Now, this would have been surprising for the disciples uh, since they'd just done this type of thing. Like, like only weeks earlier, Jesus had sent them on a missions trip and they'd cast demons out of people and proclaim the kingdom of God. But now, they lacked the power and ability to do it. And Jesus tells us why. Because they had unbelief, they had lack of faith, and they had twisted motives. Right? This, as he said, oh, unbelieving And twisted generation, he states, how long must I bear with you? 
Jesus is exasperated because his disciples seem to have so quickly forgotten where to find their source of power and authority to overcome and why they were given it in the first place. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, Jesus tells them that this kind of demon can only come out through prayer and fasting, which are two disciplines of a faith-filled believer who is committed to surrendering to God and allowing his power and will to flow through them, right? In other words, the, these disciples weren't doing that. Instead, we can infer then that they, they were attempting to do the work of the Lord without the Lord, They were attempting to act on Jesus' behalf without Jesus. And yes, they were seeking to do a good thing, but the issue is that they weren't, the issue is that they were trying to act in their own strength. More more than that, it's also possible that they were acting with self-aggrandizing motives, right, for their own glory. You know, I, I, I just got, kind of imagine how it went down. We don't really know how it went down, but I just imagine how it went down. This desperate father shows up. He's, he's seeking the, this healer, Jesus, on, on behalf of his only son, and, and the disciples answer him. You know, they're, they're chewing their gum. You know, they're like, well, you know, Jesus is a hero right now, but we're his disciples, so, you know, we can, we can do that stuff now too, you know, right? And, and, and I think I can then imagine them trying to cast the demon out unsuccessfully, getting awkward each, at each failed attempt, embarrassed and, and getting sweaty as the crowd looked on, you know, come out of him. Uh, no, um, be gone. No, uh, expelleremus. No, okay, that didn't work either, right? <laughs> because they couldn't do it. Not without faith in Jesus. They could say anything they wanted. They could try as hard as they wanted, not without Jesus, who eventually did it himself. He calls the son over. The demon's trying to fight back. No, he simply rebukes the demon from the boy and returns him to his father. A reminder that we need Jesus to overcome. We need to set our eyes on his authority and allow his spirit to work in and through us. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13 confirms this. says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. On that end, the disciples' attempt here to, to do a good thing on behalf of Jesus without actually leaning on Jesus and, and moving in his power should be a, a convicting reminder for us right off the bat that even when we attempt to do good things for the Lord and in his name, we need to be aware that, like the disciples, we're also capable of giving in to that temptation to make it all about ourselves. We're also capable of, of giving in to the temptation of relying on our own strength and understanding and of idolizing the thing or the experience even even under the veneer that we're, we're doing it for him or for his name. 
And this is why we need his spirit to repeatedly draw us into a deeper dependence on him. Because as we can see, without him, we can't overcome or even represent him rightly. It's only in Christ that we can. And Jesus knows this. Of course Jesus knows this, which is why as the crowd looks on in astonishment at God's power just having been put on display, everyone's like, whoa, right? Jesus calls his disciples over. And he says from Luke 9, 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Let these words sink into your ears. You know, stop, stop gawking at this miracle only. This, this child's milk, as Paul would call it. But listen closely and understand, because this is the most important thing. This is the meat. The cross, his death and resurrection, our salvation in Jesus. Because even his disciples have proven here that the cycle of unbelief throughout the generations will remain and repeat only until Jesus conquers the power of sin and evil in the world and in the hearts of man for good. And so he tells them that even while he's just rescued this man's only son, God's only son will actually have to die at the hands of this unbelieving and twisted generation simply because that's how he'll also rescue them from being part of it. That's how he'll reverse the effects of evil and unbelief once and for all. As Tibetiani Abuile writes, the priceless thing in the text is not the casting out of the demon. The greatest thing about Jesus isn't his miracle working power. The greatest thing about Jesus is his cross and resurrection. That's the main thing. The crowd is amazed, but belief is more than amazement. We triumph by taking our stand by faith in Christ. That's how we escape being part of an unbelieving and perverse generation. But yet, then it says the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. We can infer that due to their own unbelief and because they were afraid of asking him what he meant, that they were prevented from understanding. It was concealed from them. In other words, the very first thing they do after God the Father during the transfiguration had just explicitly told three of, the, three of the disciples to listen to Jesus, his son, the very first thing they do after that is to do the opposite. They don't listen to Jesus. And it seems their refusal to listen it comes from the fact that, they, that, that it's just not what they wanted to hear. Peter does this another time, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because they likely don't want to hear anything from his mouth which seems so contrary to what makes the most sense to them. Right? And, and we do that as well. We read verses that say, don't quarrel. And then we log on to Facebook. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, we, 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 we justify our quarreling when it suits our desires or, or especially when we think we're defending right doctrine or, per, or our personal opinions, right? Don't we? We totally ignore that. 
We follow our own way. Or we read verses that say, forgive one another as you've been forgiven. But yet we hold on to bitterness and, and even seek vengeance, all the while justifying it in our minds as right and godly because our circumstance is unique and demands it. Right? Or, or we read verses that say, be angry and do not sin. But we allow our anger to form in our hearts to the point that, that we find ourselves bluntly or passively, aggressively trash-talking those who disagree with us or those who disagree with Jesus. Again, even justifying our hurtful and judgmental speech as virtuous and God-approved. The point is, is that we've become very adept at convincing ourselves that we're representing Jesus and doing his will, when at the heart of the matter, sometimes we're actually not listening to Jesus at all because it's not what we want to hear. Proverbs 12, 15 says something about this. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. It's no surprise then that, that as the disciples continue to walk in the way of a fool, that it leads them to immediately begin arguing with each other about who's the greatest among them. I'm the best. No, I'm the best. You're the best. You're right. It's so silly when you actually think about it. But I guess from a, from a worldly perspective, this question of, of status and, and importance is, is commonplace and even necessary for, for a functioning society. We need to know who's in charge. So in their minds, it probably seemed good and noble to figure out where they ranked among Jesus' disciples and, and who might be the best of them all. It's not clear as to what started this debate, though. Maybe the fact that Jesus had only taken three, taken three of the disciples up to with them up the mountain, and so the ones that were left behind, maybe they were a little envious or jealous, or maybe the ones that got taken were a little prideful, I don't know. Or maybe it was for a different reason altogether. Maybe it was because they, they figured that if, if Jesus was going to die, as he said, I mean, they don't understand why, but I guess if he is going to die, then, then they needed to figure out who would be in charge after he was gone. Maybe that's why. Either way, once the subject was brought up, it seems their, their me-centered and self-promoting spirits definitely took over from there. But to their surprise, Jesus just flips their thinking upside down. Greatness in the kingdom of God, Jesus tells them, isn't to, to crush and clamor over one another in order to, to climb the corporate or societal ladder. It's to be the least of all. It's to go down to the bottom of the ladder to lift up the least. I think Jesus' point is that everyone, even a child, which, which he draw clo drew close to him, right, is significant and important to God because we're all made in his image. And to be great then is to humble ourselves in their childlikeness and in service to them, which, which is what Jesus does for us. He came to serve us. And then he says, and in serving them, the least, we serve Jesus. And in serving Jesus, we serve God. And that's the most important thing, right? To bring glory to God, to make sure our lives reflect Jesus and the way he came to serve and gave up his life for us. Once more, the disciples had it all wrong. And once more, they may have thought that they were doing the Lord's work and figuring out their status and rank among themselves, but they were just acting 
childish, not childlike, childish, only following the self-seeking and self-promoting ways of the world. And again, I think that if we ourselves take, a on, take an honest look at ourselves and, and see our pride and, and, and what we're pursuing or what we're idolizing, we can often, we'll often find that you know, at, at, at times and in certain ways, we probably, we probably look more like how the world's doing it than how Jesus has taught us to humbly and meekly serve in his kingdom. So we have a lot to learn there. And while Jesus is certainly teaching them to, to walk humbly there, walk humbly, he's also teaching them again to trust in him and not in their own understanding, to look to him and not themselves for how to live. But then, almost as if they didn't even hear a word that Jesus had just said, or maybe from a little bit of a guilty conscience from what Jesus just said, John begins telling him, like this is how they respond to this. John begins telling him that they recently saw a man casting demons out of people in Jesus' name, and so they tried to stop him because he wasn't part of their group. He's like, y'all, hey, Jesus, like, we did this awesome thing for you, and also, you're welcome, right? That's, that, that's like what's happening here. How, how virtuous and, and justified and proud of themselves they must have felt as they attempted to stop this man, this imposter. Ironically, though, this man, whoever he was, was actually doing the work of the Lord, He's casting out demons in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory. We don't even know this man's name. Obviously, for him, it was about Jesus. He's doing something that the disciples themselves had just failed to do. And yet, they sought to stop him simply because he's not part of their group. I think we can also safely guess that there's probably a a little bit of envy at play here as well. Since this man is doing what they couldn't, he's exemplifying a power-filled faith which they lacked. And so they must have been a little annoyed and and jealous at that. Either way, this is a perfect example of religious tribalism, right? Religious tribalism where where the club or the clique becomes more important than than anyone or, or anything else, even the message. Where we begin to think that if God is for us, then he must be against everyone outside of our group. Anyone, anyone who believes just a little bit differently than we do. The irony here, of course, is that while they thought they were doing the work of the Lord with, which such, with such zealousness, they were actually trying to put a stop to it. While they thought they were, were protecting and standing up for Jesus' name, they were actually pulling it through the mud. They were unknowingly setting themselves up against Jesus, and they thought Jesus would commend them for it. But of course he doesn't. Instead, he responds to them probably with with an eye roll and a deep sigh and with Italian hands, right? Don't stop him! For for the one who is not against you is for you. Uh, 
can just imagine. And I can only imagine the disciples' feelings of, of regret in that moment, right? You know, as it washed over them. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about. You know, that sinking feeling you get upon finding out that this good thing you thought you were doing was actually a, a bad thing, you know, a very bad thing. You're just kind of like, ugh. And all you can just say is just like, ugh, whoopsie, right? Like, uh, sorry, right? But I'm sure that was happening to the disciples. But, but again, we're not so different from making the same erroneous errors in our virtuous attempts to protect the name of Jesus and the integrity of his kingdom. You know, for example, there's never been a more divided Christianity since Christ ascended to heaven. We spend much of our time debating with, with other denominations over petty disagreements about secondary doctrines and styles of worship and spiritual gifts and the size of the church, Arminians versus Calvinists, conservative versus charismatic, Protestant versus Anglican, Baptist versus Presbyterian. Christians have even split their churches over useless disagreements about where the church library should be located or whether they should have drums on the stage or, or whether they like one pastor's oratory skills more than another. You know, we trash talk and hurt one another in hours-long church meetings and, and over Twitter and on podcasts, and we all think we're doing it in the name of the Lord and on the side of Jesus. Historically, we've even made tribalistic and dividing lines between cultures and gender and skin color and social status and age groups, and we proudly stare up to the heavens and exclaim, look at us, Jesus, we're doing all this good for you. But Jesus is throwing up his hands and saying, don't stop them, for the one who is not against you is for you. Should we have discernment and, and watch out for false teachers and ministries? Absolutely. Absolutely, we need to have discernment. But more importantly, we're, we're called to make every effort to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, right? To lovingly support and cooperate and stand together as Christians in what we agree on, the saving grace of Jesus, the glory of God, the proclamation of His kingdom. And so we need to be very careful before we strap on our, wep our so-called weapons in the name of God or before we, before we speak words against one another under the guise of, of protecting Jesus. First of all, because Jesus already has all the authority and he doesn't need our protection. His word stands firm. And secondly, because we j usually just end up making fools of ourselves and just making a mess out of things like the disciples did by trying to stop that man from doing the Lord's work. And thirdly, our battle is not with one another, right? As we found out at the beginning of this passage, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battle then is won through prayer and fasting. By submitting to Jesus, putting on Jesus, listening to Jesus, exemplifying Jesus. By not trusting in our own understanding or our own human reflexes and instincts and, and being led by our emotions, but trusting in the Lord and His Word. 
to not be wise in our own eyes, but to do what he's called us to do, even when it doesn't make sense to us or to the systems of this world. The disciples still don't get it, though. Next, they travel to a Samaritan village on their way to Jerusalem, but, but they find out that the Samaritans there don't want to receive Jesus because he's heading to Jerusalem. And so his disciples, once again, get angry on his behalf, and they say, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven to consume them? I think I felt like that a few times with a few people in my life. <laughs> I understand where they're coming from. Lord, should we call fire down from heaven to consume them? Again, their tribalistic self-righteousness is coming out in full force there, justifying their call to violence even with with religious zeal, which is a combination that's always dangerous. It's possible as well that since three of the disciples had just seen Elijah during the transfiguration who himself had once called fire down from heaven to consume an altar of Baal and and along with his prophets, maybe they had this on their mind, right? And And so maybe they thought that this would be a great act of faith, in the same vein as that, you know, to stand up and, and, and bring righteous condemnation down upon their enemies, to smite those who don't welcome Jesus. I should also note that, that many Jews back then systematically didn't like Samaritans, and so this could be part of their eagerness, eagerness to call fire down upon them as well. But either way, Jesus rebukes them. We don't know what he says, but Jesus rebukes them for the idea And then he just simply moves on to a different town, which is what he teaches them to do as they go on their their missions trips, right? If they don't receive you, then just go on to a different town. For as it says in John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, Will there be a time of of judgment when Jesus returns, when he comes again? Yes. But judgment is for him to decide and enact upon, not us. We're not called to call fire down upon people who who disagree with us or who don't believe in Jesus. Because more importantly, he first came to bring grace, right? He came to present the gift of salvation and peace with God to all who would believe in him. Because, and, and as he had just told them if they'd been listening, he was about to take the judgment of mankind's sin upon himself so that we won't be condemned. So that we could be covered in his forgiveness and righteousness. On that note, we can now read in the book of Acts that many Samaritans eventually did believe in Jesus and and, and found forgiveness of sins through him. And so, good thing they weren't burned up, right? Anyways, from, from the disciples' side of things, what may have seemed like a great idea of faith was actually foolishness and potentially evil. Besides, hadn't Jesus just recently taught them to love their enemies? Yes. Yes, he did. How quickly they forget. But Deffenbaugh again writes, the disciples thought their indignation and intentions of burning the Samaritan city were righteous. 
They no doubt viewed being, quote-unquote, first in the kingdom as a noble goal as well. And they were doing Jesus a quote-unquote favor by seeking to prohibit an unauthorized man from exercising demons. How much easier it is for us to justify our sins by feeling that we are duty-bound to do them. Beware of sins with pious exteriors. And again, we're no different than the disciples here. I think just like them, we also have that tendency to mistake foolishness for wisdom, to mistake acts of evil for great acts of faith. Where what looks like Jesus' will being done is actually really just worldly or selfish ambition at play. Historically speaking, this is kind of a cliche example, but historically speaking, we could look at the Crusades Right for an example of this, many biblically uneducated soldiers and knights were duped into thinking that the reclamation of the Holy Land through violence and pillaging was a great act of faith and that they'd be rewarded in heaven for it. When really, behind the scenes, it was actually just a war for political and territorial power, just masked under a veil of religion. Another example, which, which is a little bit more current, it's kind of happening all the time, unfortunately, is that we've, we've seen and, and witnessed a number of abusive and authoritarian pastors com- coming to light, leaders who had fooled not only their congregations, but also themselves into thinking their manipulative, attractive, and self-legitimizing actions were virtuous and full of faith simply because they spoke with boldness or charisma or, or, or because they claimed to be doing the work of the Lord and, and that they were called by the Lord or, or because they were filling the seats of their churches so it must have been right and okay. But of course, it's easy to look out and, and see examples in others, isn't it? So what about ourselves? What about our lives? In what ways have we been calling our evil actions good and our sin virtuous and bitter things sweet in our lives? In what ways have we convinced ourselves that that we're doing the Lord's work but actually just leaning on our own understanding or being led by our own emotions or desires or following the course of the world or possibly even being deceived by the evil one who, Scripture tells us, come disguised as an angel of light. And in what ways are, are we taking the Lord's name in vain, using Jesus' name erroneously as a means to promote our own opinions or our own understandings and our own self-interest? In other words, in what ways are we ignoring Jesus' teaching? and the power of the Spirit within us, which leads us to love one another, to be patient, to be kind, to be meek, to be bearing one another's burdens, having self-control, avoiding quarreling, honoring one another, practicing grace and forgiveness, hungering for righteousness, being merciful and compassionate, seeking unity and peace, and walking in power as we humble ourselves in order to lift up others towards Christ. In what ways Are we not acting like that and telling ourselves that it's good? And how can we be sure we'll know the difference? How can we unmask sin that's been disguised as virtue? 
by doing what the disciples failed to do here, by doing what the disciples were afraid to do here, by asking Jesus, by faithfully listening to Jesus, by having ears to hear. And what that means is, is laying down our lives and following after him. But it, what that means is repenting at the foot of his cross for trying to be wise in our own eyes and then surrendering to his way by asking him for wisdom and prayer and by attentively growing in the knowledge of and in obedience to his word. Our minds need to be sanctified in his word. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. I'm going to conclude with this passage. It says, About this we have much to say. It's true, I could, I could keep preaching for a long time if you want. You know? But seriously though, about this we have much to say, and, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Just like the disciples in their passage, right? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Amen. So I invite you now to come before Jesus. Come before his throne of grace. To approach his table with faith in him and hearts of thanksgiving as we remember that he was given up into the hands of men that he died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and set free from being part of this unbelieving and twisted generation. He died and rose again so we could die to sin and live with God. As it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You have your communion elements at your seat. But before we take them this morning, before we do this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight also tells us that a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And I think we have a lot to examine in ourselves this morning as we've gone through this passage. And so, so before we partake together, let's first take a couple of minutes in silence before the Lord. And then as we do, I would encourage you to use this opportunity to humble yourself in repentance, to confess your sins before him, to ask him to, to change your heart and to exchange the burden of those things with, with his mercy and his grace. So let's take some time right now to just come before the Lord.